listening to Radio Tedland. Heading Nowhere, written by Patrick Cullen. Chapter 10. Heading Nowhere. I always managed to get off the beach again, get a job and a bed back in the hostel. I'd have periods of drinking more responsibly, just a bottle and a half in the evenings, no going wild at the weekends. And then there were the wild weekends. One evening toward the end of my time in Tel Aviv, I was in a bar in an industrial area, about 20 minutes from the hostel. They had a special on tequila. Every time a bell rang, you could go up to the bar and get a cheap shot. They must have been watering it down or something, because I got to 18 shots before losing count, but I remember the bell ringing some more before I finally left the bar. I made it back to the hostel and found someone who sold some LSD. Already under the influence of the tequila, it was an okay tab, though not the best, not Bart Simpson. While at the hostel, I also got the address of a nearby brothel, close to the beachfront down a side street. I came up on the acid as I got there, and was greeted by the large, middle-aged Belarusian who ran the place. He quickly got me sat down with a cola in my hand, then found me a girl. I paid my money and went off with a young Russian woman. When we got to her room, though, she refused point-blank to get out of her lingerie, just sat on the bed and laughed as I stood there drunk and wasted. I got a little of my money back, and another cola as I sat outside, with the young prostitute still sniggering at me as she walked past a couple of times. Before long, I was down on the street again, where I bumped into a black man walking past. We got talking and walked up the road together to nearby Gordon's Bar, where we sat at a table outside and drank beer and talked some more. He was from South Africa and was in the country because of the upcoming elections there. There would soon be a mayoral election in Tel Aviv too, and he'd travelled to Israel to study democracy, with the aim of putting it into practice back home. We drank beer as the last of the tequila and acid worked on me, and watched the sun come up on a new day while he told about his time in the ANC. He was recruited in a township and went to a series of universities, further and further away from home. Africa, the Middle East, then Patrice Lumumba in Moscow. He learned a lot about politics, but also about weapons and explosives. At one point, he'd been captured by South African troops deployed undercover across the border in a neighbouring country. He described how he was tortured so he would give his captors information about his comrades, how he was laying face down over a desk with his trousers round his ankles, whilst men ran in from the doorway and kicked him in the testicles, how different things were done with an electric cattle prod, how it felt when he finally gave in and told his torturers about his comrades, how it felt to find out later some were subsequently captured and others died as a result of what he'd said. At some point during this tale, the Belarusian from the brothel came and sat at the table with a beer in his hand and gave me my wallet, which he'd found back in the brothel. Whatever cards and memorabilia I had were still there, as well as the bit of money I'd had left. The next month or so my life continued in much the same way, living at the hostel, regular work, daily drinking and weekends spent partying. And then I met a Danish woman. We fell in love over 14 days before she flew home. I decided the time was right for a change and made a plan to travel to Denmark and join her. Although my life in Tel Aviv had been lived mainly from day to day, with no real direction, I'd come to see my time and experiences there as a way of throwing myself into the sea of life 
and washing away any fingerprints my upbringing had left on me, of making myself my own. Maybe now, after having tried to erase all signs of my former self, it was time to choose a new direction and put my own fingerprints upon it. Potty Motty came up trumps. He managed to understand I would be leaving the country by plane because of a woman I loved and gave me a place to live for free, a flat in a downtown area mainly populated by junkies. The flat was to be renovated, and I was to demolish it as I lived there, while doing other work for him during the days. The first time of showing me the second-floor flat, he walked ostentatiously around a used needle on the stairwell, pointing at it and saying, No, no! There was no need. I'd already spotted the purveyor of my particular poison while waiting for him to meet me down on the street, a small kiosk across the road. It didn't have a lot, but among what it did have were cheap vodka and mixer. After two weeks in the flat, demolishing it in the evenings after whatever other work I'd been doing for Motti during the day, I managed to save enough money for a ticket to Denmark. During the start of my time at the hostel, the roof had been turned into a bar. Chiefly responsible for the design and decoration of the bar was Graham, an Englishman originally from the Northwest. He didn't work day to day in construction like most of the others I knew, but did more long term projects such as the bar and other things for the hostel owner instead. Graham claimed to be or have been many things before turning up at the hostel. Apparently at some point in the Foreign Legion, but also a roadie for New Order for several years, now he described himself as an artist. The others I hung around with ridiculed his stories, and ridiculed me too for listening to them. I just said I'd never claim what he said was true, but that what he said included truths worth listening to. One of the stories he told was about how he'd travelled from England to a village in France with a friend, wanting to work in the grape harvest. They forgot to check the expected dates of the harvest, though, and as a consequence arrived there too early. Rather than travel south to where the grapes were ready for harvesting, they decided to stay where they were, and instead found a bus shelter on the edge of the village where they lived with their sleeping bags and blankets. Having quickly run out of money while waiting for the harvest to arrive, they did occasional odd jobs to get by, but basically lived on charity, bread, cheese and wine from the villagers who adopted them when they saw they weren't dangerous criminals. One day, two men came to the bus shelter and asked if they could stay the night. Graham and his friend said yes, and all four sat around and shared what they had. Within time, the two men told their story. The older one, with a long grey and white beard, was an author, researching a novel he was writing, while the other, younger and looking like he kept in shape, was a bodyguard employed by the author's publishers. When the author heard Graham and his friend's story, and in particular that it was Graham's birthday that day, he had a talk with his bodyguard and arranged for transport to a nearby chateau. Having made himself known via telephone to his credit card company, the author had been given a sizable sum of money, which he proceeded to spend a great deal of on a meal for all four at the chateau's restaurant. After several hours, they paid up and drove back to the bus shelter, stopping only to use a little of the remaining cash on some things for the following day's breakfast. When they got back to the bus shelter, the author put the remaining cash in an envelope which he then addressed to his publishers before giving it to the bodyguard to deposit in a nearby postbox from where it was picked up late in the evening. In the morning, there was breakfast. Brief thank yous, the slightest mention of the banquet yesterday, an unspoken knowledge that this was a new day and good luck on the road.
Then they were gone, and that's where Graham would finish telling his story. The first time I heard it, I went straight to the money. Why did they have to put it in an envelope and send it back to their publisher? Why not give it to Graham and his friend instead? That was the beauty of it all, explained Graham. The author knew Graham and his friend had found their own way of getting by. They had a plan, and though it was difficult, they were surviving and working towards it in an okay way. And anyway, the harvest would soon be there. They had given him and his friend a day out, something different, but they didn't want to destroy the good thing they had in the bus shelter. The evening before I left Tel Aviv, Graham had come to the flat I was demolishing and taken me out for a meal. I was unused to eating at a restaurant. It was something other people did while I walked by outside. Food was fuel. You ate all you could every time you had the chance. And when I asked Graham why he left some uneaten food on his plate, he said it wasn't lack of hunger, but an expression of decadence. Graham said Denmark was a good place to learn, and then gave me a present. It was a black Fruit of the Loom t-shirt, an obvious copy from the nearby market. When I pointed out it was fake, Graham said that made it perfect for me, because I was fake too. I went back to the hostel on the evening of my flight for a farewell party. There were a lot of old friends at the hostel wishing me a safe journey, among them vodka and joints. Also, an occasional visitor. Peter, the French guy working reception who claimed his father was mayor of Saint-Tropez, got hold of some heroin, which I sniffed before getting bundled into a taxi and driven to the airport. I remember something of the drive to the airport. Then I woke in my seat in the plane, as a stewardess told me we would soon be landing at Copenhagen Airport. I found out the flight had been delayed because of me. Apparently, I'd passed out in Tel Aviv Airport, and security had first had to confirm I was neither dangerous nor wanted with my six-month out-of-date visa, before finally carrying me aboard the waiting plane. I might have had a destination written on my ticket, but in truth, I was still heading nowhere.